Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 15, Curriculum for Wales, with Lucy Crean. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We have a new guest for you today and we've got to say actually, first of all, this is the first time since the pandemic that we've taken our podcast on the road, Tom. We should probably uh, fess up as to where we are. Yes, we have landed in a house in Swansea with a lot of wires and for the (laughs) first time ever, somebody who we've uh, book reviewed on the podcast, we now have the author of that book. Lucy Crehan, welcome to our humble podcast. How are you? Thank you. Very well, thank you. You're very welcome to Swansea. Oh, thank you very much for having us. So I guess the first thing that we should do is to ask you to give us a bit of a brief overview of your background and especially what drove you to take yourself out on the road uh, and to travel and to examine education systems globally. Sure. So I began my career in, in teaching in a secondary school in Southwest London, teaching science and psychology. And it was a school that was in a fairly uh, challenging area in terms of the background of some of the children who went to the school. And that was deliberate because my motivation for working in education, as is the case for many teachers, is one of social justice and bringing children along so that they can you know, make the most of themselves and their potential. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really feel I was able to do that in the context that I was in, despite my best efforts and the best efforts of my colleagues, so much of our time was going to bureaucracy, to paperwork. We were working really, really hard, but a lot of it was just ticking boxes, um, paperwork for the sake of the inspectorate. It felt very, very accountability driven. And it, and it felt like we weren't actually able to focus on the important task at hand. And this was a time when, um, this was in England that I was teaching. So Michael Gove was the education secretary and he was talking a lot about high performing systems. And he was saying, oh, well, you know, we're strengthening the league tables because this is what they do in high performing systems. And I couldn't quite believe that what was so clearly not working in England could be working well elsewhere. Mm. Um, So that got me very interested in what they were doing in these other systems. So I went to study for a master's, read a lot about accountability in these different high performing systems. Long story short, they're not doing what Michael Gove said they were doing. And actually, the accountability is much more supportive in countries that do very, very well in these international tests. But I was I was curious at that point. I was kind of hooked on what, what they were doing then. If they weren't doing this high stakes accountability, how were they managing to get such a high proportion of their students to, at the very least, basic levels of, of literacy and numeracy? And these tests, are, you know, this is not a... a the kind of tests that you can rote learn for. This is um, the PISA tests are application of knowledge. So they're using what they know to solve not actually real world problems because they're still tests, but the kinds of things that they would come across in their lives and in their work. Um, so yeah, so that led me to want to go and see what was going on really. Um, and I, I wrote, I literally wrote emails um, to teachers whose email addresses I found on the on the web, um, went, used couch surfing, used Facebook and just said, look, I, I'm interested to come and see what you're doing. Um, my name's Lucy. I'm a teacher. Can I come and help out? Um, can I stay with you too, please? I <laughs> uh, didn't have um, didn't have the funds to be going around staying in, in hotels and hostels, but but mainly, to be honest, because I think the people who understand the system the best are the people who work in it every single day, and that is the teachers. 
So by living with teachers, which I was very privileged to be able to do in, in six different countries, actually, for a month, mm. I was able to get to know those teachers and their perspectives on the systems in which they were working. So it's kind of a form of ethnography. Is that the right term in terms of methodology? You were like boots on the ground, really getting in amongst it and trying to understand the lived experiences of, of those education systems. And hence, Cleverland's. Yes. Yes. <laughs> which is your book. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So I was, I, I mean, some of it was was formal interviews or I pre-written the questions and I recorded the interviews, but a lot of it was was informal chats on the way into school with everyone, you know, not just teachers, students, head teachers, parents, school caretakers, taxi drivers, anyone who would talk to me. Yeah. Um, I was asking them questions about education in their country. And we reviewed, actually, we reviewed the last chapter of your book in the podcast a couple of years ago because there was so much in the book. Actually, one chapter did us perfectly well for an episode. And I distinctly remember making some comment in the episode along the lines of, you know, hats off that somebody actually got on a plane and went to have a look at this stuff rather than than just kind of talking about it. I suppose we have to ask the inevitable question now. We're in the middle of curriculum reform here in Wales. We've, we've got a very ambitious plan which is in the process of of being implemented with your kind of worldwide knowledge and experience where does that plan sit in the kind of picture the worldwide picture are are we following trends elsewhere are we outliers are we about to fall down a massive hole or are we along the right lines i mean just you obviously we'll get into more detail in a bit but just in the broad sense you know how how do you see what's going on over here so Curriculum for Wales very much does follow in a global curriculum trend, which has been called the New Curricular Turn by Biester and Priestley. Um, and it follows in the footsteps of curriculums such as uh, the Curriculum for Excellence in Scotland, um, Australia's, not the very most recent curriculum, but the curriculum before that, and New Zealand's curriculum, which again is also being changed. I mean, maybe come back to why they're being changed um, in a minute. And Sweden to, to a certain extent as well. So, so it's certainly part of curriculum trends and, and those trends have been led to a large degree, I think, by the OECD, or at least they, they're the ones who, who talk a lot about the need for these um, kind of very high level competency-based often curricula. Although it's very important to note that the, the Welsh curriculum is not a competency-based curriculum, doesn't use the words competency, um, but it is, is very kind of deliberately high level in terms of high level skills, and knowledge and experiences rather than discipline specific content. Mm. And in terms of your perception of the teacher's experience of those high level curricula, such as New Zealand, Sweden, you know, given what we're trying to achieve now um, in Wales, what do you know from your research and what do you perceive to be the merits and the challenges or the potential pitfalls of that high level curriculum design? So the merits are professional ownership. It's an incredible opportunity for teachers and head teachers to sit down and really think, right, what fundamentally is important to us in our school? What's important to our learners? How can we bring in the voices of the community? And, and it's incredible professional development. You know, thinking about designing a curriculum pretty much from scratch is amazing professional development if you have the time um, to dedicate to the professional development and the time to dedicate to curriculum design. Mm -hmm. Because of course, it takes a very, very long time to design any um, kind of curricular, even just for one subject, if you're going to really think deeply about it. Mm. So I think that's the that's a real, um, the real benefit of, of all of these 
high level curriculum and and, and op- scope for creativity as well like huge huge scope for creativity um, and to combine different subjects in in any ways that that you want the risks i don't think actually are um the straightforward flip side of of that i think there is a sweet spot where you can have both things and i'm sure we'll we'll get onto that in a bit but but the risks as i see it are based on my personal observations in two countries new zealand was actually the sixth country i visited as part of my Cleverlands tour. Um, I didn't write about New Zealand because the year that I was there, the PISA results came out, the new PISA results, and they had declined their scores significantly. Um, and then actually in the two cycles since, their scores have continued to decline in New Zealand. So it became a case of, oh, actually, what's maybe what's not going so well, like what has changed recently. Um, but I, was, I did still spend four weeks in schools in New Zealand. And I've also spent a week, um, I was invited to spend a week in schools in Sweden. So just a week in this instance, but still, it's quite a lot of time to be in classrooms, talking to teachers, looking at um, at the curriculum in particular. So there are four challenges as I see it. Two of them are overcomable with resource and two of them are overcomable with logistics, I suppose, or collaboration. Um, So the first two, of course, are time and professional capacity, um, i.e. professional development. And... It takes a long time, doesn't it? To, as I said, it takes a very long time to, to plan a good curriculum. Teachers can end up feeling very overworked. You, you know, there's a, a quote that sticks with me from um, some, some work by, I think it was Biester and Priestley in, in Scotland, a curriculum for excellence, where this teacher was just saying, I just don't see how I'm going to do all this. I'm teaching from nine till three. And it's just not, it's just not possible. And, and why, why hasn't someone somewhere come up with it? Which of course is not what we want. We don't want someone somewhere to come up with it and take all the autonomy away from schools. But there's real tangible sense of frustration there mm-hmm. um, for, for just the, the incredible amount of workload associated with designing curriculum properly. Professional development, of course, as well, requires a huge amount of time, requires uh, the expertise to be in the system to, to actually pass it on and spread it around. And that takes a long time too. But I'm less interested in those ones. Those are kind of well-known challenges aren't they and, and they are not easily overcomable but it's a question of you know the resource being there or not the other two are, are, are a bit more fundamental to the kind of curricula that these are and this is the case in both sweden and new zealand um, and they are risks to equity and risks to curriculum coherence now if you don't have national descriptions of specific and by which i don't mean you know hugely detailed but all children need to be able to, you know, understand the concepts of democracy, or they need to have studied some ancient civilization, things like that. Then there's no guarantee, of course, that any student will ever study an ancient civilization. And that decision becomes entirely up to the school. And what you see in places like New Zealand is that that means that children are exposed to not just different material, because there's no issue with children being exposed to different material, but different quality of material and by quality I mean I suppose different levels of difficulty and sophistication which shut down or open up students opportunities for um, progression within their academic career but also just opening their eyes up to the world mm. um, and you can see this so example in New Zealand from the work of, of Wilson and colleagues forgive me I forget the year but I can send you links to these papers later um, where they were looking at literacy standards in New Zealand um, and it's it's so flexible the, curric- the curriculum in New Zealand that there are you know, a thousand and one different ways you can meet these literacy standards. Um, And so in schools that have predominantly Maori and Pacifica students who in New Zealand are typically from poorer backgrounds, those students were in this study just simply studying 
young what what is it called young people fiction yes youth fiction youth fiction you know, young adults twilight type yeah. stuff i mean don't get me wrong i love twilight <laughs> yeah big big twilight fan but but you would you know you wouldn't want your own child to just study twilight in secondary school in their english lessons whereas students in the more middle class areas were studying adult literature the kind of adult literature that would give them the the knowledge and the skills required to do the equivalent of a level and put it, study it at university if they wanted to, and and so they would they were noticing that because there's this this flexibility, some students were just getting much much um, less of a varied diet and less of a challenging diet, to to use a slightly dodgy metaphor perhaps. Um, so that's the the equity piece, and then the, the second part of the equity piece actually ties up with coherence. So I'm going to talk about coherence and then come back to equity. Coherence is my biggest worry. So let let me tell me tell you what I mean by that. Um, I mean specifically coherence in the sense of do children who are accessing this curriculum have the prerequisite knowledge, skills and experiences that they need to access whatever it is they're being taught in this lesson or this unit. And some of that, you know, you can never guarantee coherence through a national curriculum. But if you have a national curriculum, which is, I suppose, more traditional or actually more like the ones of Estonia or British Columbia, which are very recent, but still set out some core content, then you can to some degree guarantee that a student has at least been taught this. They may not have remembered it, but they have been taught, you know, they've just been taught fractions. So then now they can access the next lesson on adding fractions to use a very, very basic example. If you don't have that, if you if you have just very high level content, then there is no guarantee that especially it transitioned from primary to secondary, that students will actually have the prerequisite knowledge, skills and experiences. And particularly around vocabulary, um, familiarity with certain concepts. If students haven't come, haven't come across those words, they're going to be lost when it comes to learning something new. If students don't have those reference points, because actually they've never studied a sonnet in primary school, or they've never studied a poem. I know it sounds exaggerated, but... You know, some students will be coming to year seven having studied a sonnet and the structure of a sonnet and be kind of ready to take on the next thing. Some students won't. And what that means as a year seven teacher is you're, you've got two choices, essentially. You can just assume that the, the children coming from primary school don't know much and maybe they can read and write, but we'll assume that they don't know anything about history, let's say, and we'll start from scratch, in which case that is a huge wasted learning opportunity to build on all of that fantastic learning they've been doing in primary school, but you just don't really know what it is because everyone's done something completely different. Mm. Or worse, you assume that they have knowledge that you don't have because you think, well, that's fairly basic, they'll know that. Or you just haven't necessarily thought through it as a teacher that actually these words might be new to the students. And so some students don't have that prerequisite knowledge. And which students is it? that get lost which students is it they get left behind because they can't access that vocabulary or they haven't actually been taught about this this feature of of monarchy for example it's the students who are not going to have those gaps filled in for them at home Mm -hmm. and so you have potentially increasing inequity I couldn't help notice that you uh, name checked Scotland's curriculum for excellence a couple of times just then and uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Not least because they're very nearby. They're perceived as being a little bit ahead of us in terms of bringing in a, a curriculum based around kind of core competences or whatever we, we might like to call them. And of course, uh, the mighty Professor Donaldson was there kind of at the heart of it. And detractors, uh, you know, writing about curriculum for Wales tend to suggest that it hasn't gone enormously well up in Scotland and that that we may be about to stumble into some similar traps. I mean, from your point of view, how is it actually going in Scotland? Are those are those detractors just people with an axe to grind or, or are there issues in Scotland? Are there things we can learn from them being perhaps a few years ahead of us? Mm. 
So it's it's very difficult to say, and we face this issue with any kind of evaluation of policy reforms anywhere. You can't do randomized control trials because it's whole systems we're talking about, mm-hmm. and and any of the data that comes out is you know almost by definition only a small angle to look at it through. That being said, um, the ang- the small angles that we can look at it through, it doesn't seem to be going hugely well in terms of PISA results stagnant at best, declining in a couple different people will have different interpretations of, of what where the causes of that might lie. The national hires have been declining as well. There was a report, forgive me for getting the name of the, the chap who wrote it, but but also not hugely positive about the the, the outcomes of, of learners since the introduction of, of um, curriculum for excellence. And the OECD, which is the organization that is mo- has most historically been kind of pushing these types of curricula, in reviews of Curriculum for Excellence have at best said, it, well, it's it's a good idea, but it's still not implemented yet. And, you know, this is some 10 years after it's been officially been implemented. So is it implementation problems or is it design problems? That's the question. If it's it's been that long and still it hasn't been implemented to the way it's set out suggests to me that, that the way it's been implemented hasn't worked very well. And, that, and that, you know, we're still at a stage in Wales where the implementation hasn't really happened yet. There's still time to do it in a different way because I think what happened with Scotland is that because there was so little specification or, or I was going to say so little guidance, lots and lots and lots of guidance, pages and pages and pages and pages of guidance continually coming out that teachers in Scotland just weren't able to keep up with. But I mean support in terms of, so here's a kind of framework for how you might um, set out learning around you know history or here are some really important key concepts in geography that's important for students to grasp before they leave primary school if you don't have that Scotland kind of came in and and rather than having input control which is what you might call it when a, a system outlines the content they want students to cover they instead have output control the system still tries to have some control but because they don't want to be specifying content instead it's output control where instead it's all around exam results or they've they brought in these um assessment um objectives basically but but hundreds of them Mm -hmm. so in the end it becomes a bit of a tick boxy exercise so I'm not. I'm not. You can probably tell from how I'm talking about it. I'm, I don't. I don't feel hugely positive about the way it's gone. Curriculum for excellence. And um, one of the things that the OECD have pointed out, and this is, I think, their thinking actually as an organisation is moving on this, is that something that curriculum for excellence and something that Scotland needs to do to make the curriculum for excellence work is focus more on knowledge, because knowledge has been downgraded essentially. Even though it's mentioned in the high-level documentation, in practice, because there's not any specific knowledge or very little specific knowledge set out, nor is there guidance for, okay, well, how do you select the knowledge and how do you sequence the knowledge? And those two key things are missing. What schools then hear is, oh, it's not really important. So long as we're teaching the skills, it doesn't really matter what knowledge we teach. And then you lose coherence even within a school. Because if in, even within a school, teachers aren't thinking about what's the core knowledge, the really important knowledge that children need from this module. How does it relate to what I've taught before? And how is this setting the kids up for what they're learning in a couple of years? Then you haven't even got coherence within a school. And then again, you have the equity issues of some children just falling down, missing out not being able to keep up because they haven't actually been taught the prerequisite knowledge that they need to access this next topic. 
And just um, to go off on another one of my annoying detours before Emma drags us back onto the rails, we've mentioned Pisa a number of times here and, and Pisa has been mentioned on the podcast loads of times as well because our education reforms were basically kick-started by a series of really poor Pisa results. There are those who say, oh, Pisa panic, we shouldn't have you know, worried so much. I suppose on the one hand, Pisa is, is the game that's in town when it comes to comparing education systems. But to what extent is PISA a good proxy for measuring education systems, apart from the fact it's the one that we all use? I think it's, it's, a, it's quite useful. It tells us something. It certainly doesn't tell us everything. And, and single-minded pursuits of improvement in PISA and in disregard for everything else would be problematic, for sure. Um, and, and it's a case, you know, with, with countries that are the highest performing in PISA, they don't think PISA is that important because that's the thing that they're already doing well and there's a whole lot of other stuff they're not doing so well that they're now focusing on, which is good that they are. Um, and that's one of the reasons I went out on this trip was to look at, actually, is this a, a proxy for something that's important? Do I Would I actually want to send my kids to school in Singapore? And actually, in that instance, the answer is no. So it's not everything, but it does measure something which is really important, which is children's literacy and children's numeracy, which fundamentally affect their ability to continue learning as adults, to access employment, to engage as a citizen. I mean, you know, to the four purposes. If children have the things that are measured in PISA, that goes some way, not all the way, but some way to helping them achieve those four purposes. If they don't have those things, they cannot achieve the four purposes because you can't be an ambitious learner if you haven't got literacy. Mm. And that's what it's measuring. So coming back to this massive task that teachers have before them in Wales. And you're right, I think thinking about curriculum for Wales now, we've got an abundance of how to design your curriculum guidance, but I'm not sure that we've got an abundance of guidance about how we decide on a disciplinary level, what are the core concepts of our discipline? What is a coherent way to organize those concepts? And and what is the, essential knowledge although I'm, I'm a bit wary of that phrase probably for all the reasons that you know probably uh, it dates back to Gove as well it makes you quite twitchy doesn't it when we sort of decide that they must know this over this but that whole process again requires professional learning it re- requires teachers to have that kind of critical capacity to discern you know what is fundamental and what is not and as you say it takes time Do you feel that at this stage, with the guidance that we've got as it stands, is that enough for teachers to be able to do that job? And if not, where does your project with regional consortia fit into this? And how is it trying to address that that issue? Mm. I don't think at the moment the guidance offered gives enough support or guidance as to how do you actually design a curriculum that is coherent? I think it offers a vision for what that end result of curriculum should look like and all the different things it should consider and take into account, which is is a fantastic vision and one that I fully agree with. But it's a lot of it is, is more about, well, make sure you include this, make sure you include that, and the end result should be this, rather than how do you get to that end result. The principles of progression are fantastic. I fully agree with the principles of progression, but how do you make those principles of progression actually be a fundamental part of your curriculum? That's a really hard question. And that's not a question that's that's easy to answer. It's not like, okay, 
do this, do this, do this. And Bob's your uncle, there you go. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But because it's so hard, I don't think it is a the kind of decisions that should be made purely at the level of the school, partly for that reason and partly for the coherence reason. I think this, these are the kind of conversations that should be happening at the level of the cluster, um, at, the, at the smallest unit, to be honest. And actually, ideally, these kind of conversations should be happening across subject networks within a local authority, for example. You know, get your secondary geography teachers together to talk about what what are the key concepts in geography that's really important for all of our learners to know about? And, you know, how do we structure these ideas in a way that is going to help students to have a deep understanding of them? Mm-hmm. I think a really useful distinction that we've not yet talked about, and I will I promise I'll talk about the, pro- the programme in a moment, but is, is a distinction essentially between con- concepts or uh, abstract content and the contexts in which you teach them. Yeah. And a lot of the Curriculum for Wales guidance is all about deepening learning, deepening students' ideas of certain key concepts. And you can select different content with which to do that. And I fully agree with that. And and one way of doing that, one way of of, of deepening students' ideas of, of, of concepts is to keep returning to different concrete examples of the same concept. So those concepts are the kind of things that they're not situated in any any particular time or place. This is stuff like democracy, monarchy, um, sustainability. Mm -hmm. They're ideas, they're ideas represented by mental schema in in our minds. And they're actually what we used to think with. And that's what's gonna enable students to progress in their their learning. So they're really, really important. And this is something that is very much picked up by Curriculum for Wales, not picked up by, advocated by Curriculum for Wales. But what Curriculum for Wales doesn't do is tell you what any of those concepts are other than the very, very high level ones like change and governance, which are important, but massive. And so there's all of these really important concepts that sit within subjects, essentially, what in what I'm calling the middle layer. And if you were to specify, and I'm not saying that anyone has to do this, but this is what I, if I was in a cluster, if I was a head teacher, if I was in government, to be honest, what I would be advocating is clusters working together to design a middle layer curriculum framework. So they're not specifying the contexts. They're not saying everyone's got to study the Tudors um, within this cluster, but they might say, okay, well, whatever, in primary school, we want everyone to study a monarch. And we want them to understand these particular features of monarchy, like the fact that it's often hereditary and that there's a divine right of kings and often, you know, those kind of level of ideas that leaves so much scope up to individual schools to personalize that, to make it relevant, particularly for their learners in terms of which monarchy are they looking at or to, you know, to, to take, well, another example, you might have a decide that a genre is, is particularly important for you, in your particular cluster, like a genre of within um, music or in within literature but you're not saying well and it has to be this book or this composer it's rather that right well we're going to understand kind of some core structures of tragedy like what's what are the key features of a tragedy but then what tragedy you what tragedies you study the way in which you do that that's up to schools and that is still massive in terms of the amount of work and the amount of really important thinking and decision making that's still tons and tons of stuff for schools to be getting to grips with without then also trying to decide right what's a kind of like fundamental concepts within biology and how do we teach those and when you might as a primary school not even necessarily have a biology specialist in your team yeah this absolutely resonated with me because and I, I know I've said this a lot on the podcast but just to give you an example I, I come from the discipline of drama we've never had a national curriculum so we've never had any core concepts articulated at national curriculum level and so this question is is a really difficult one even for me I've been teaching drama for years if if you were to 
you know, ask me what are the fundamental core concepts to drama and theatre as a, a as a discipline, I wouldn't want to have that discussion on my own, <laughs> kick that about on my own. I, I'd want to do that in collaboration, and exact for exactly the same reasons. You know, we we cannot guarantee that we're going to have drama specialists in all schools, in primary schools. So the arts, the expressive arts is an interesting one because we've got some disciplines in there that notoriously like drama have, have never been national curriculum subjects. So that we've got we've got an issue with expertise in the system as well. So I, I think you're right. Um, and I think this is a, a fundamental area where we're gonna fall down if we don't invest time and, and professional learning in this area. I'm just thinking now, you lay out at the start of this project that you're you're currently working on with is it just central south consortium no no, it's, no it's, 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 it's across eas and central south have, have been the instigators but we've actually also got um colleagues participating from both quite and partner so mm. it's pretty cross-regional and so you've got a limited amount of time with them presumably mm. yes and you've got to help them find a way in and i know that some of the sort of big concepts that you get them to contend with early on is the idea of coherence is the idea of these concepts um and and how that leads to uh, you know the concepts leading to the context um on a local level so what kind of expertise or what, what kind of experts are they working with to help get them there what strategies could people out there who aren't engaging with a project like this who are working in clusters is there anything that you can give them in terms of approaches, ways in that might help them to do this without being part of this project? Yeah, absolutely. So so in the first instance, we've been really lucky to have a lot of, of expertise, including yourself. So thank you very much for, for coming along to, to offer your, your expertise in, in your disciplines. But we've had so lots of um, discipline specific expertise and all of those have been recorded and will be available across the system for free to whoever would like to watch them so so that's all um of just a fantastic resource so the, what we asked the ex- experts to do is to come along and talk about like what are kind of really important concepts within the discipline and to start thinking about when you might teach those and how you might sequence those and um, we also had quite a lot of um of input earlier on from both from from myself and also uh, mary myatt who's a curriculum expert and christine council who is well, both of them are absolutely phenomenal. I highly recommend that you, you listen to to the input from them. And um, we've had Joe Hallgarten, who's come to talk about how you do local curriculum as well. And we've had the DAPL team as well to come and talk about diversity. And they were all, they were brilliant. So loads and loads of, of just professional input, which will all be available very shortly. Um, in terms of the process, so what what this program has been about really is figuring out, can we come up with a process to help clusters and schools to go from these very high level, what matters statements to a school level or a cluster level, ultimately school level curriculum in a way that leads to coherence and therefore more equity. And we're, we're muddling through together. It's not, you know, it's very much the development of a process. It's not um, been straightforward. We've been a few different dead ends, partly because every AOLE is so different. Mm. And even within every AOLE, there's subjects that are that are different and then therefore require slightly different ways of thinking. But we're getting there. Um, and, and so what will be available after this program will be kind of here's, here's what we did. Here are the steps that we took. Here's what that looks like in terms of, you know, we've obviously it's hard to design a process without actually making something. So we have been producing some progression maps for each subject. And we've actually broken subjects down into what we're calling threads 
for example, that might be around a concept, like in geography, it might be a thread around sustainability, or it might be a, a skill, so like grammar within LLC, for example. Mm-hmm. And so as a group, the the subject specific groups are focusing on right and what what is the kind of high level knowledge and well content knowledge and concepts really that we would want students to understand in progression step one in progression step two etc the idea is that you could combine those different subject specific threads into one big progression map which could be if a cluster were to use this process from three to 16 so you actually know when someone comes into year seven I know that they've studied in ancient civilization and they've got some kind of a basic understanding of what those civilizations look like, even if I don't know that they've studied a particular one. Um, so you've got something to build on. Um, and the idea is that, that that is something that could be done at a cluster level. And then schools can then do what I mean, whatever they like with that. It could They could take a fairly kind of traditional subject-based approach if they wanted to, but they could, you can also do a completely interdisciplinary topic-based school curriculum, drawing on several of these different threads from different subjects and combining them. The difference from just going straight into topics is that this way, you know, because you can see where they've been and where they're going and you can deliberately make those links and take the subject seriously. Because ultimately, you've got in your descriptions of learning the importance of analysing and evaluating, communicating, but what analysis looks like in history or in music, they're actually very different skills. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, you, can't, you can't rely simply on the descriptions of learning for progression because they are too high level for you to actually track progression. And just to give, just to give a quick example of that from expressive arts, actually, one of the description and learning strands is all about techniques yeah. and I'm, I'm about, forgive me for not have knowing the exact, the exact words, but about, you know, industry standard exploring techniques and using techniques. Now, if as a prime primary school, you're kind of taking that, that strand that's all about techniques, it doesn't, it's not even talking at the, at the moment in the descriptions of learning or well, the point about individual discipline. So you could be teaching them a particular technique in singing and you've done that in year six and then you get to year seven. It's not like you can then, build on and suddenly now we're going to do them to an industry standard and the techniques we're doing here is watercolor now obviously you're not going to progress from a particular technique a vocal technique in singing to watercolor in year seven because a different it's different content and i think i'm not suggesting that, that that's what the descriptions of learning are even trying to do but i think it's important that schools realize that that is not what they do they do not do progression that's not perhaps with the exception of, of mathematics because it is much more content specific and I'll share an anecdote, if I may, that I think just illustrates this really nicely. I picked my daughter up from the matron the other day and she wanted to race to the park. Obviously she won because she's three. I'm not that mean. Um, <laughs> and we just, so we got to the park, she won and she said, mommy, I'm, I'm an expert at winning. And I obviously found that quite amusing because you can't be an expert at winning. But, but then think about why can you, why can you not be an expert in winning? It's because winning isn't, transferable across different domains you can be an expert at winning in a particular subject in the same way that you can be an expert at communicating in a particular subject or in a particular domain within a subject even mm-hmm. similarly with critical thinking you know you, so so you've got to base progression in your school curricula and your cluster curricula around the content of the discipline and fully embrace and teach and develop the skills they are just as important but the skills are an application of that knowledge they don't exist independently of it so you can't just go from topic to topic to topic without thinking about how does the knowledge within these topics link up the the skills are not enough to carry it by itself picking up on what you said about the aoles being very different 
and I, th- I fear this is going to turn out as a bit of a multi-part question, so mm-hmm. apologies in advance. I mean, <clears throat> Emma and I are very privileged that it is our job to pull student teachers out of school and to create the space to try and make sense of some of this stuff, something that teachers emphatically do not have at the moment. And as a because of backing up example of what you were saying, you know, we've recently tried to make links between the expressive arts AOLE and the health and well-being AOLE. Those documents don't marry up at all. They're completely different. Even within our own expressive arts AOLE, you drill down to the disciplinary specific stuff and those disciplinary specific lists don't marry up. Um, there's not a kind of coherent way that those those lists are done. Is this sort of this, this detail kind of stuff that you're talking about here, this middle tier, this, this really getting down to details, is this a ball that was dropped at the design stage, do you think? And I suppose kind of the obvious question that comes on from that, are we ready? <laughs> so I think it was a deliberate decision to not include that level of stuff in the national curriculum. And as I said at the beginning, that that's an international trend. That's not Wales being an outlier particularly. I do think as a curriculum trend, that element of it is problematic. Um, and it relies on, for its success, it relies on a lot more work being done at the level of the middle tier. And I'm saying middle tier deliberately because it's not enough to do it at school level. For all the reasons previously discussed, schools don't have the time. A lot, Most don't have the expertise or certainly don't have the expertise across all the different subjects. And even if you did, you need to have coherence from primary to secondary. So it's got to be at the very least at the level of the cluster. So there's a huge amount of work to do. And I think it's probably going to, well, we're making a start at it cross-regionally. But it, it may be something that we'll, clusters will need to, to dedicate some time to, or in terms of resource, perhaps local authority level. As I said at the beginning, you know, working in subject networks across a local authority might be a good way of doing it in terms of pooling their expertise and coming up with something. It's, it's difficult. It is difficult. There's a, there's a lot of work and a lot of, of really hard thinking to do that I just don't think is... It, to be honest, it wouldn't be desirable for individual schools to do it, even if they did have the time. And of course, the worry, I guess, in all of this as well is, you know, we talked about PISA as a measure, but you say Estin to any any teacher in Wales and, uh, you know, we get the heebie-jeebies about how they will interpret and measure the way that teachers are delivering uh, curriculum for Wales, the way they've designed it, and whether they know and are sort of convinced by the notions of coherence and what that should look like in practice. I, I often wonder, um, and I'm sure we'll get them on the podcast one day to be able to ask them. <laughs> you know them. it's my mission. <laughs> but, um, you know, just about about what research informs their uh, measurement of success and whether this is working when they're coming in to, to inspect schools. And so do you, do you think that they've got an important role to play in this? And do you anticipate that they'll be chasing the right things? Hmm. I, I don't have the answer to that. I'm just curious to know what you're... I think they have a huge role to play because the government, it seems, has deliberately not exemplified what this might look like in practice. There's a lot of description of, of what it ought to include, but but no kind of, and here's one way of doing it and here's another way of doing it as yet. I know, hang on, I stand corrected. I've seen some tweets recently with, with kind of case study schools. They're all doing very, very different things, which is fair enough. But I think I think a lot of schools will be waiting for the first Sestin reports to come out that are looking at curriculum and seeing what they say and what they're looking for, just for a bit of that extra guidance, support, understanding about what, what this is 
what this might look like, what this could look like, what Estin wants it to look like. Unfortunately, you know, it's a system like many others that is is still, there's still fear, isn't there, of, of accountability um, mechanisms such as Estin. I, I'm not at all familiar with Estin. I, I, I don't know much of their work, so I don't know what they'll be driven by. I think it's really important for Estin to consider like the whole range of potential curricular goods if you want to call them that, because they will be, no doubt, be looking for um, relevance to students. They'll be looking for community involvement. They'll be looking for interdisciplinary links, although that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be taught interdisciplinary in terms of like through topics. Those are all really important things. I think it's also really important that Estin, in addition to those things, not instead of, but in addition to those things, look at coherence in terms of what what's this building on, what's this leading towards in terms of students' knowledge and understanding an equity to a certain degree, by which I mean high standards, high expectations of what the students are accessing, not a kind of very exciting, engaging, but ultimately not challenging curriculum, because that's another potential danger. Mm. We've got a relatively new education minister who may or may not be coming on the podcast shortly. (laughs) And he could, as you know, he's not the person that, that kicked this whole thing off. He, you know, he's got relatively clean hands, I suppose, in that respect. We are coming out of a global pandemic as well. You know, we've all had a, a fairly tough time. He could announce some kind of intervention. He could announce a delay. He could announce a big pile of money. He could announce that some sort of additional guidance is going to be cooked up and put in place. I mean, if if he were to pull a lever... What lever would you like him to pull, if any? Mm. I've been thinking about this. It's a really difficult question. Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult one for government because they don't want to be seen to be limiting the autonomy of schools. And yet they've got to have some control because you can't literally leave it entirely up to... Well, if you did leave it entirely up to schools, then ultimately it comes down to you guys. What's the initial <laughs> teacher training like? No pressure. Um, within a year. <laughs> within a year, well, quite. Um, so, you know, in, in any system that is well while functioning and high performing, there, there's got to be control at some point in the system, whether that's in terms of who gets into teacher training in the first instance, what the teacher training is like, whether there's a school, school inspectorate, what resources are used, what's the curriculum like. There's got to be some lever somewhere. Um, if you don't have those levers, as previously discussed, you move from input control to output control instead. Very, very rarely do you literally have no control and it wouldn't be a good thing mm-hmm. if you did, if there was no way in which the government was steering education full stop. That's a very, very long-winded preface i think what i would do if i were the minister of education in wales is i would strongly suggest that clusters need to meet together to talk about curriculum in their schools and to decide decide on some bare bones in terms of what are expectations of what's going to be taught at, at that what i'm calling a middle layer level not the specifics of it's this text or that king but they're going to understand the concept of monarchy they're going to have used the words test tube you know the the vocabulary and the ideas that they would have been exposed to and that that would need to be agreed at a cluster level that would be one of the things and then i suppose yeah ideally delay it by a year give everyone more time to to do this thinking flood the system with professional development from subjects education experts mm-hmm. around right you know what, what do children need to understand in drama and, and ultimately how do you how do you teach them as well because if your primary colleagues and you it's been a long time since you were in initial teacher education suddenly there's this new curriculum you might not necessarily well no one knows everything do they everyone's going to um, benefit from some additional professional development and i think at the, at the moment especially because of the pandemic teachers have been so so stretched and i i do not 
envy them having to design a school curriculum pretty much from scratch in this context. It's a perfect storm, isn't it? Because there's that and then you've got inequities that have been exacerbated and the gaps that have been widened through COVID. So we've got pupils who have been left behind through the pandemic. And we know from research that we've been involved in that, you know, things that would normally confer advantage such as uh, pupils who've got parents and carers who are able to support when they're learning from home, didn't necessarily, that didn't work out that way in the pandemic because they were key workers, they were for whatever reason. And so we've got this gap, we've got teachers who are stretched. And I guess it kind of comes back to that that point that about you know time and space and is and do we need to pull the right levers now and reset things even more in light of COVID? I know we're coming to the end of our time with you, but there is one big thing we haven't really discussed yet, other than a, a very kind of glancing mention in relation to output controls, and um, and that is the question of the qualifications that pupils end up getting at the end of their their compulsory education. And we've certainly been involved in research quite early on, actually, several years ago, which was suggesting that secondary schools in particular were standing still and not doing big things because they didn't know what was coming on the qualification front, while at the same time, the people responsible for the qualification side of things were saying, no, we don't want to be the tail wagging the dog, go off and do your thing. And secondary schools were saying, well, no. And, and that this enormous sort of game of chicken happened at, at secondary level, which I think possibly slowed things down a little bit. We've had a tiny bit of detail come out now about qualifications. They are making a few changes. They are sticking with a few things. What are your thoughts about what we know about, about what qualifications are going to look like? Are we, are we looking good on that front at the moment? And I suppose the wider question, how are we going to end up measuring whether this has worked? Hmm. So all I've read in terms of qualifications, to be fair, is what's been in the news. Um, I know that there are, there's extensive rationales been written for the why, uh, which I haven't had time to read. So I don't, I don't want to kind of declare what I think having not read all of the detail. I am nervous about the decision to make the three sciences into a single qualification. I'm nervous as a parent, to be honest, um, as a parent of children who might want to study science at A-level and then have a big, big jump um, because if it's just in the one qualification, you're just not going to, to study the same amount of content, are you? Um, and the three sciences, having been a science teacher myself, they're really different. Um, they're, obviously, there's some things in common in terms of like the how science works stuff, but they are, they're very, very different. So there's, there's that. Similarly, the English um, language and English literature, I would just, from a, from a fairly ignorant perspective, as I say, I haven't read the rationale, but... English literature is really important and, and I'm concerned that it might just get a bit lost if it's compiled into a single qualification and with English language. But I need to read I need to read all of the, the rationale behind it first. In terms of how we measure, what, what do you mean, how the curriculum reform is working? I think PISA is going to be one one measure. Like I said, it's very difficult to, to measure change in an education system, especially if the qualifications are changing as well because then you haven't even got a comparison before and after. So... I've just keep doing PISA. Um, I, I heard rumours the other day that that some in in Wales were suggesting that Wales didn't take part in PISA, and I think that would be a really really bad idea. It would look like we were running away from the accountability that comes from seeing the results of some pretty major reforms, and it's it is a really useful yardstick to measure something that is important, not everything, but something. And ultimately, how seriously or not you take PISA is up to the education minister. Um, no one is forcing an education minister to do anything 
um, based on the results of PISA. It's just a useful to know, isn't it? But I just wanted to ask one more question. Having taught and started out in England, being sort of dissatisfied with things that were going on, going off on, on your global tour, now coming back to Wales and noting that England is going in a very different direction, um, big, big emphasis on curriculum design and being able to justify um, your, your curriculum choices. But, but that said, a different model. If you were to go back into the classroom and be a teacher now, would you prefer to be a teacher in Wales or a teacher in England? I think it's really dependent on the school because in both systems, the, there's huge, huge diversity in terms of the the <laughs> how enlightened the head teachers are, for want of a better way of putting it, just in terms of, you know, you in both systems, you get te- head teachers who are, they just want to please Ofsted or Reston. And it's like, right, what do the government want me to do? What do Ofsted want me to do? Mm. Which is fair enough. I'm not saying that that's, um, you know, that, that's completely rational, especially in the context of England where Ofsted is so feared and so powerful. Ultimately, if you get a bad Ofsted inspection as a head teacher, that's your, your career ruined. So I, it's completely justified, but it does lead to a pretty poor teaching and learning environment if you're doing everything for the sake of Ofsted and for evidencing stuff. In Wales, there are some schools doing absolutely incredible stuff with curriculum for Wales. And this is the thing, like there's loads of expertise in the system in Wales. The trouble is that it's not consistent across the country and therefore giving so much autonomy to schools over curriculum design is going to lead to greater inequity because some of the schools that already know what they're doing <laughs> they're going to do incredible things and schools are already a bit a bit stuck and a bit overworked and often working in the most difficult circumstances with the kids with the most additional needs and additional support required they're the ones who don't necessarily have the the expertise that they need to design a great curriculum either so and it's a bit of a cop-out answer but honestly that the, there's more difference i think between schools than there are between countries Lucy, you've been incredibly generous with your time and sharing your vast expertise and experience. Thank you. We've got two short slots that I think you've prepared for. So starting out with something interesting, if you will. Mm. My old psychology tutor at university, a wonderful lady called Jane Mellonby, who's sadly recently passed away. And her most recent research that she was working on just before she died is around grammar. Hear me out. It doesn't sound that exciting, but it is really interesting. Um, And particularly, counterfactual conditionals. So sentences of the structure, if you two hadn't come to my house today, I wouldn't have tidied up the front room, for example. Or if Hitler hadn't invaded Germany, then something else would have happened. My history is not great. I can't actually finish that sentence. (laughs) But it really, so that structure, which supports students thinking in science, in terms of controls and how experiments work and and particularly in history as well as illustrated by half of the sentence I just gave you and her research was basically looking at how students understand these sentence structures and how actually it's not just a case of oh well they understand some grammar or they don't understand some grammar it actually affects what they're able to think about if a child doesn't have that grammatical structure in terms of exposure to it understanding it being able to use it they can't actually think in the same way about counterfactual situations. So not having the grammar of being able to say, you know, if if I hadn't heated this up, it wouldn't have bubbled. That actually stops them from being able to think about scientific experiments in the same way. It actually affects their engagement with the subjects of science and history amongst other, you know, everyday examples. So it's really, really important that students have this. And it links to what we already know, doesn't it, about 
the importance of of language and how with the language that children have when they come to school really affects how they then engage with school. But previously, I've always thought of that, about that as just being about vocabulary and about the knowledge that's underlying that vocabulary. Actually, it's also about the grammar actually enhances your thinking. It doesn't, doesn't really matter if you call it a counterfactual conditional, but, but having that grammatical structure, being exposed to it, understanding it, using it is really important for students' thinking. Fascinating. And do you have something that our listeners could try in their professional life, either in the classroom or outside it? I'm going to link this directly to my something interesting, which is what Jane Mellamy then suggests, because I haven't been in the classroom myself for some time. I feel a bit awkward about from from my own experience suggesting something for teachers to try. But what what um, Professor Mellamy suggests in terms of the educational implications of this is that in primary school, I mean, even in preschool, children are read stories that include these sentence structures. You know, don't shy away from the more complex grammar. Use these in in your teaching with students. Expose them to it a lot. And then somewhere around the middle of primary school, explain what it actually means, explicitly teach it, so that the students who haven't just picked it up from, from the exposure from the stories do actually get a chance to understand that before they get to secondary school, at which point it's being used in their lessons and they might just be missing stuff. Brilliant. Lucy Crehan, thank you very much for welcoming us into your home, providing us with baked goods (laughs) (laughs) Um, and sharing the the wealth of your your knowledge. And it's really great to have you back in Wales um, and, and contributing to this massive task we've got ahead of us. So I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point to I give us so. some more uh, some more pearls of wisdom. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Lucy Crean, author of the best-selling book, Cleverlands. And thanks to Lucy for inviting us and our wires into her lovely house. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and tell us what you think. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Mm